celebrating so that if somebody comes in and looks at our tree, we want each week for them to be able to look at it and buy I know what they're celebrating. And a lot of times I think that, um, that, that we miss that opportunity in our decorations to be able to point people toward the object of our celebration. And so that's the reason why we ask these kids to help us to do that. So each week, they're going to have decorations they've made in their Sunday school classes, and they're going to come and hang them on the trees, and uh, we'll probably swap up trees. This week, we'll let them do this tree, and next week, we'll let them come and do this tree. So if you made some Christmas decorations this morning, y'all come up right now, and uh, we're going to hang them on this tree over here. What y'all, what y'all got? I want to know what you got. The colors of the spirit. Yellow represents God's perfect light. Black represents our sins. Blue represents the baptism that identifies us with Jesus. White represents the cleansing of our sin. Red represents the blood Jesus shed for us. Green represents the new life we have in Jesus, and purple represents the crown of life. All right. What you got, buddy? You got an angel. All right. Come here. You want to help me hang it? You colored? Good job. Here, you want to ask Montana or Lauren to hang one of them for you? Say, help me hang it. And then Rose and Carrie, if y'all would, come on up here. <clears throat> All right. Ms. Rose is going to read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 and I think Carrie is going to she's not going to read okay so you're going to read all of it Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah during the time of King Herod wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked where is the one who has been born king of the Jews we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. With he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Christ was going to be born. In Bethlehem and Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now Ms. Rose is going to light our first Advent candle this morning. Now let me give you an explanation of what we're doing there. 
Advent is a is a season or a time of the year to where we we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior. You know, the birth of our Savior is such an an awesome event that can it truly be celebrated in a day? No. And so we start early and we start preparing our minds to understand what it is that we celebrate. We are actually building anticipation as we wait for Christmas. Each week that these kids do decorations and they put decorations on the tree, it's a way of reminding us and reminding them what it is that we're celebrating so that they actually take part in the celebration process. And then it's, it's just doing intentional things so that it focuses toward uh, and, and building an anticipation for the coming of the king. So we read scriptures that, that we just read, and, and one of the things uh, about those scriptures that I want you to think about is that it said that when the wise men came and told the king of the Jews that he had came or they had come to worship the king that had been born, it said that he was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Well, think about that for just a second. First off, this Herod was the king of God's people. He was the king of the Jews. So he was the pastor of the church, if you will, in a sense. And then all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And in this day and time, Jerusalem would have been the church. The Jews were in their homeland of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about this. If the first church was not prepared for the king's first coming, is it possible for this church to not be prepared for his second coming? Wise men from the east came to worship him, and when they heard that he was born, the church was troubled. And so Advent is a time not only that we prepare our minds to understand, we, we intentionally pick songs and we intentionally pick scriptures and we intentionally do decorations so that when we sing, we have a Savior, we meditate on the fact that we need a Savior. We need a Savior so bad. We are hopeless without a Savior. And so when we sing that song, it's to shift our minds in the focus that we need a Savior. But the good news is we have a Savior. And we're going to celebrate His birth. We're going to celebrate the fact that He came. And so Advent does that. And in each week is something as simple as lighting a candle. And while that may not mean much to you, but every week that we light a candle, it means that we are a week closer to Christmas. We're a week closer every week, and so each week that these kids light a candle, they're going to remember and they're going to light another one and say, okay, instead of one candle next week, we're, we're a week closer than we were last week to celebrate Christmas. So again, the season of Advent is about building anticipation, building a, a, a spirit of expectancy so that when December 25th gets here, even though that's probably not even the day that he was actually born on, but 
it is a it is a time that we can actually build anticipation in ourselves so that week by week and day by day another thing that I'm doing is every day I'm posting for those of you that have social media on Facebook and we'll probably get Nathan to do it on the uh, the church website or, or something but I'm posting a devotional each week that points us toward what we're getting ready to celebrate so if that's something that will help you you know here's the thing about it how many of you have ever heard somebody say, or maybe you've even said yourself, it just don't feel like Christmas? I, I just don't feel like celebrating. Well, here's the thing about it. When you start understanding what Christmas is, it shows you how to feel the celebration. It teaches you why, even in your darkest hour, Christmas is worth celebrating and should be celebrating if you have hope in Christ at all. And so if through these things that we do, anticipation is not built in you to celebrate Christmas and to be thankful and to be able to praise Him for what He has done for us, then I encourage you to evaluate yourself and figure out where the hope is. Where's the hope? What am I missing? What am I not seeing? What is it that I don't get? And then I pray that we can help you to establish that so that you can be full of hope by the time Christmas gets here. So that's what Advent is. This is not some, um, just a, 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 an off-religion uh, practice that we're trying to do. This has purpose and it has meaning, and this is what it is about. So as we sing songs, as we make decorations, as we do all these things that we do, I pray that you are getting ready to celebrate Christmas, but I also pray that you're preparing to stand before him at his second coming. And that's the reason why I have been going through the seven churches of Revelations, and that's where we're going to be this morning, in Revelations chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is where we're going to be. I've been going through the churches of Revelations because I knew Advent was coming up and I wanted us to focus on the preparation for Jesus' second coming. I truly believe with all my heart, and as you get there, you're welcome to stand for the reading of God's Word. But I truly believe with all my heart that if the first church was unprepared at His first coming, all of Jerusalem was troubled when they heard of it. How much of this church is going to be troubled when you hear Christ coming the second time? And then how many of you will be like the wise men, filled with anticipation and expectancy to be able to welcome Him as He comes and thankful that He is coming and He's coming back to receive those that are His. So in Revelations chapter 2, verse 12, this is what it reads. And to the angel of the church... In Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam and taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. <coughs> so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, 
I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and with a new name it will be written on the stone so that no one knows it except the one who receives it. You can be seated. Over the last few weeks as we've looked at these churches, um, I want to give you a very short summary of the first two churches. The first church we looked at was a letter written to the church of Ephesus. And Jesus told them, he said, listen, I know that you are a hard-working church. I know you are. I know that you are laboring to the point of exhaustion for the sake of my name and for the sake of the kingdom of God, and yet you're not even growing weary. And he said, this is an awesome thing. But nevertheless, even though you work hard to the point of exhaustion, I have something against you. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. You have left that moment in your life to where you, you experienced what it felt like when you first came to know me. Y'all excuse me just a minute. You've left your first love. You, you used to follow me in a way that you saw just exactly what I had did for you in your life. You know, I think about James and Betty right now, and I, I hate to call them out. I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to do this, but they're in a prime example. They've lost everything. And now to see people just come to them and love on them is a humbling experience, I believe. And they're experiencing what it feels like now for, for people to just do for them when they don't have to. They don't have to do anything. They're, they're, just, they're just loving on them, and they're just, they're just doing this undeserved. And that's such a small example of, of what it feels like whenever we first experience the love of Christ in our life, when we truly recognize that He don't have to do this for me. He don't have to do anything for me. And yet, even though I'm a sinner and even though I am his enemy and I rebel against him, he loves me. And to experience that and to feel that, it changes everything about the way that you serve. It changes everything about the way that you minister to other people. I use this example whenever I taught on the church of Ephesus. It kind of puts you in the mindset of instead of where a lot of times we, we stand and look at others as sinners and go, boy, they need Jesus. And instead, it puts us in that place to where we kneel at the cross and we look out at people and they say, y'all come. There's room at the cross with me. It's a humility that takes place in this first love. And Jesus says that they had lost that. They were working hard and they were doing so much for, for his name and they weren't even growing weary as they worked so hard and did so much, but they left their first love. And he said, listen, you've got you've to get it turned around. You've got to go back to where you used to be. 
And then we went to the, Smyr the, to the church in Smyrna. And he didn't even have a, um, a condemnation for them. It was only encouragement for them. But they were a suffering church. And they were going through great trials of poverty and persecution. They didn't have anything. They were the poorest of the poor. And then they were persecuted so greatly. But they were encouraged. Jesus told them, don't fear suffering. I'm the first and I'm the last. I know how this thing ends. Don't fear that you don't have anything right now. I know what I have prepared for you. I'm the first. I'm the last. At every introduction that he gives, there's a reason why he introduces himself the way that he does. And in Smyrna, he told them, I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the one who died. And I'm the one who came to life. And he wanted them to understand two things. He said, first off, don't fear suffering for my name's sake. If it means you've got to suffer for my name's sake, don't fear it. Embrace it because it confirms that your faith is genuine in me, number one. Number two, I want you to remember something. I'm going to restore everything a hundredfold. More than you can ever imagine, I'm going to restore everything back that you ever thought that, that, that you lost. And then I've got so much more prepared for you. And then he told them, he said, I want you to be faithful even if it means your death. There were Christians that were literally dying in the town of Smyrna. And he said, I want you to be faithful even if it means your death. And he said, I want to encourage you to do that. And so Smyrna was a church that he looked at and he commended them for, for, for these things, for their faithfulness, for go, going through suffering and poverty and, and still staying faithful and true to God. But then today we get to a church that has both a encouragement but then also something to look at as a church to make sure that they correct some things. And I believe this one is going to hit home to a lot of us today. Maybe one of these first two churches hit home to you. Maybe you're one of those like Ephesus that your problem is if Jesus come back today, you're working hard, you're doing a lot for his kingdom, but you've left your first love. You've lost that sense of humility and that thankfulness for what he has done for me. And I pray that if that's what it takes to prepare you to get back, that you do that. Or maybe you're like Smyrna and you're just going through suffering and you're going through poverty in this life and you're going through persecution in this life for being a Christian. He says, listen, be faithful. Don't fear suffering. Embrace it. It confirms that you are who you say you are. And then if, if the devil takes everything away from you, stay true to him. Be faithful even if it means your life. Because I'm the one who died. There's no one that suffered to the extent that I did. And I am the one who came to life. I'm the one that has the power to give life back to you and give everything back that you've ever lost. So I want to encourage you in that today. But another way I want to prepare you today is by looking at a church that they were true to Christ's name as the Lord and the only Lord, but they were a compromising church. What I mean when I say compromise? The word compromise means to make an agreement or to make a settlement with standards that are lower than desirable. In other words, you know that this is not where you should be. You know this is not what you should be doing, and yet you allow it to take place. You make an agreement with it. And so I want to look at the comp compromising church. First off, in verse 12, we have a terrifying introduction Look at the introduction that we get from, from Jesus in verse 12. 
He says, to the angel of the church or to the pastor of the church, to the messenger of the church, whoever's reading this letter, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, there are many reasons why he might use this example, but let's go back and use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And you might remember that he used the Scripture, he said that that the, uh, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So in other words, one of the weapons that we have to fight the enemy, to fight off the things the enemy throws at us, is the sword of the Spirit, the sharp two-edged sword, which is the Word of God. So the Word of God, or this could be saying, this is the words of Him who has the power to make you right, has the power to remove falsehoods from your life, and he also says that this is the words of him who has the, the living and powerful word of God, which Hebrews 4 tells us the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing to the point of bone and marrow. Or in other words, it penetrates and cuts very, very deeply into your life. But then swords are also used for another purpose. Anybody else know what swords were used for? Were they used to plow a field? Uh-uh. Swords really had one purpose, to kill. Swords were used for war. So here is the terrifying introduction. He's saying these are the words of him that it can go either two ways with this guy. It can either go good for you and the sword of the Spirit and the living and active word can penetrate into you and it can change you or this is the words of him who has the power to cut you down and to bring judgment into your life so when you get a message like this and you hear the introduction these are the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword if you were to go down to verse um, 16 he says it again. Look what he tells them in verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and do what? Fight. He said, repent. If not, I will come to you soon. I love the way that he, he don't leave anybody out in this. He says, guys, I'm not just talking to Wells Baptist Church. I'm talking to the individuals that make it up. He who has ears, let him hear. I'm speaking to you. And so he says, I am coming to you soon if you don't repent, and I am going to make war against the ones who are teaching this stuff, and I'm going to judge with the words that come out of my mouth. So these are the words of the one that has two options when it comes to you. It can either change you completely and it can make you whole or it can cut you down and completely destroy you. Those are the only two options. There is no in-between. And so this is a terrifying introduction. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 actually tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Why do you think the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? 
Anybody in here ever had a daddy that would whip your tail if you did something wrong? Man, I can't tell you the stripes that's been laid across my backside for, uh, for the things that I did growing up. And I'm going to tell you one thing that I learned. The fear of my daddy was the beginning of my wisdom. That's the truth. Now listen, my daddy didn't want me to fear him in a way that I was just scared of him and trembled him, but my daddy expected a healthy fear. My daddy expected that if he says for me to do something, guess what? I don't expect to have to tell you again. I don't expect to have to beg you to do anything. If I tell you to do something, you better do it. If I expect something out of you, it better be done. And it better be done the way I expect it to be done. And this was a healthy fear. And so this introduction that comes to you, I want you to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of your wisdom. No one has turned to the gospel of Jesus Christ who did not first see the wrath of God that was on their life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, yes, that fear as you grow older, does it not graduate into love for the most part? I've had to learn over the years that my daddy, even though he was not perfect and even though my dad made a lot of mistakes in his parenting and in, as a husband and a lot of things that my dad done, he, he messed up a lot. But one thing that I know for certain, my daddy loved me and he wanted to do what was right for me. And if my daddy being a sinner and in the eyes of God being evil wanted to do what was right, how much more does your heavenly father who is perfect in all of his ways, how much more does he want to discipline you in the right way so that it changes you and corrects you and it points you in the right direction? The fear of the Lord is a healthy thing. And as you mature and you begin to respect the Lord, then you begin to love Him the way that you should. And fear graduates into reverence and awe and love and all those things. But how many people have ever heard? Now listen, the fear of the Lord is not fear. It's not fear at all. I, I beg to differ with them. The fear of the Lord is fear. But at the same time, yes, it is love. Yes, it is respect. Yes, it is awe and, and wonder standing before a holy God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. When you get His knowledge, it's insight for you. So this is a terrifying introduction, but it's a good introduction. Now going back to Revelations chapter 2. In Revelations chapter 2, verse 13... Jesus empathizes with this church. In other words, he's able to understand, he's able to share their feelings of where they're at. So even though he gives a terrifying introduction, he tries to comfort them. In verse 13, he says, listen, I know where you dwell. I know. I understand it. I know where you dwell, and I know that it's where Satan's throne is at. Now listen, last week we had the church of um, 
of Smyrna that if you'll go back and you'll look at the few verses before, they had to deal with a synagogue of Satan or Jews that were not really Jews that were persecuting the Christians and they had to deal with Romans and they had to deal with idolatry. They had to deal with a lot of stuff. But he wants them to understand this church, they're not just dealing with the influence of Satan. I know where you live and I feel for you because you live in a place that Satan has made his dwelling. He's made it his home. This word throne here was literally used as, if you go back and you study this word, it was a word that meant the seat of, the personal seat of the master of the house. So, uh, I don't know how y'all were when you grew up, but when I grew up, my daddy had his seat, still has his seat. Matter of fact, if he came home and you were in his seat, he would just politely walk up to the seat and he would look at you and he would expect you to get up and get out of your seat. Now, he never had to say it to me because I just knew if Daddy's standing in front of his seat, it's, I got to get up. It's his seat. But there were sometimes my sisters were a little braver than I was. He was a little easier on them than he was on me. But my sisters, uh, they, they might stay in his seat for a minute, and Daddy would have to walk up to the seat and go, get up. That's his seat. And they never challenged him. They got up, and they gave him his seat. That was his throne, or according to the word that was used here. Now, maybe it's not that way in your house. It is in my house now. I got my seat, and now little, little Austin tries to challenge me from time to time, and he'll climb up. He thinks it's funny to climb up in my seat, and he'll climb up in my seat and back up in there, and he'll try not to let me sit down. But I'll tell him, i say, listen, whose seat is that? That's D's seat. That's right. That's D's seat. And then I'll sit on top of him if he don't move. And then he starts hollering, okay, okay, move, D, move, move. So I'll move, and he'll get up and get out of my way. But that's my throne. That's my seat. That's where I sit. And what this was being referenced to was that in this city, Satan had a seat that was his seat. This was his dwelling. I know where you dwell, Christians of Pergamum. And I know that it's where Satan's throne is. Yet, even still, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of history on this place very quickly. First off, this was a place that housed the greatest temple of Zeus that anybody has ever seen. Zeus was the king of the Greek gods. He was supposedly the god of all gods. And so they had a temple that was built to him in a huge horseshoe full of columns. The, it was 120 feet by 112 feet wide. There was an altar to Zeus in the middle of this thing that was 18 feet high. And in the middle of this altar, picture this, it had a bronze bull that they made human sacrifices in. A big bronze bull that they made human sacrifices. And we're going to come back to that here in just a minute with Antipas. But there was a throne in the middle of this altar, and it was Zeus's throne. And so some believe that what Jesus was trying to say was that Satan thinks that he is the God of all gods. 
And he, because these people worship that here, he's made his dwelling here and he's very comfortable in this place. He's very happy here and he stays in this place. And then we also had a, uh, by the way, I almost forgot something very important about that temple, about this uh, temple to Zeus. This altar that was 18 feet high, in the late 1800s there were these German engineers that came over and they took this altar apart and they moved it over to um, Berlin, I believe it was, in the early 1900s, just in time for Hitler to see it and be inspired by it, and he built his own altar out of the model of the one that was to Zeus, the one where Satan's throne dwelled, and he put his pulpit that he spoke from, if you ever see the videos of Hitler speaking from his pulpit, that was the model of the one that he had built after this one that was moved from Pergamum. And it was moved here just in time for Hitler to take his reign and do all that he did. Do you think that's coincidence? So maybe that's the reason why he said, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. But then there was another thing. There was a temple of um, Asclepius. Asclepius, you remember I told you last week, he was the god of medicine. And people came from all over the world to this temple for healing. Now get this. There were these priests in the temple and they had inscribed over the door of this temple. Even the Roman emperors came from Rome to this temple for healing of any kind. But this inscription over the temple said... Death may not enter here. So the only way you were getting in this temple is if they knew that you weren't going to die in it. So first off, you couldn't be sick enough to die or you couldn't come in. But then, not only that, they believed that they would take a, a, a sedative. So they would, they would drink this sedative, they would enter through an underground tunnel, and they would come into this temple of Asclepius, and then there were non-poisonous snakes I wish Fagin King was here this morning there were non-poisonous snakes that were crawling all over the floor and these people would lay on the floor and the priests would tell them that and for any of you that are in medicine today what is the symbol of medicine well that's where this comes from they believe that the embodiment of this healing of the god of Asclepian actually took its form in the serpent and they would come into the temple they would lay down and if they were blessed enough to be able to have the snake move over them in their sleep at night then it was a sign that they had received healing power yeah I'm just going to stay a dead man but nonetheless they did this alright and then it, it, it if they had a dream that night, they would tell it to the priest, and the priest the next day would take the dream, interpret the dream, tell them their sickness, and then offer a sacrifice to Asclepian in order for healing to take place in their bodies. And that's the way that healing worked in this modern day. Now, is it any coincidence that in this place, this was the place that the temple was built to Asclepian? All other places worshipped him, and even Smyrna last week was the place of research in medicine, but this was the place that had the hospital of Asclepian. Do you think it's any coincidence that a snake is what is used in this, and yet this is where the throne... What did Satan come in the form of in the garden? What did Jesus call him, that evil serpent? 
What is it that he calls him in Revelations? The dragon, the serpent. No matter, it, you think it's coincidence that in this place, not only do you have the God of all gods in the throne that's 18 feet high and the bronze bull that they do human sacrifices to him as Satan hates human beings. And then not only that, but then they have the hospital of Escalapian to where you go in and lay down and have snakes crawl over you for healing. So, again, there's all kind of reasons why this may be. But then these priests of Escalapian, and there are so many other research I could give you, but I don't have time. These priests of Escalapian, they had a dream one night. You can find this in Roman history, not Bible. Some of this stuff you can find it in Rome's own history. And some of their writings, they'll tell you that these priests that were in this Escalapian hospital at Pergamum, they had a dream. And the spirits came to them of their God and told them that something had to be done with this guy, Antipas. He was the bishop or the pastor of the church in Pergamum. And they had this dream, so they went to this Roman governor in Pergamum and they said, listen, we've had this dream, the spirits of Asclepian are telling us that something has to be done about this Antipas because his prayers are casting out all of these spirits, which we know were demons. And then the governor says, okay, bring me Antipas. So he brings him Antipas. And Antipas comes and he stands before the governor. And then there was also a cult. And Pergamon was the first place that a temple was actually built for emperor worship. Other places, as I told you last week, had a place for, worship, for, for emperors, to, wor to people to worship him and to declare him as Lord. But this was the first place that actually built a temple in his honor. And so they brought Antipas before the governor, and the governor said, I'll tell you what, if you will proclaim Caesar as Lord, and if you will offer a sacrifice of incense to him, we'll let you go. Antipas has said, no, I will not. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he alone. And they took Antipas to the altar of Zeus, and they put him inside of this bronze bull that was on the top. And they tied his head in such a way that it went back into the bull's head and the rest of his body laid into the bull. And they started a fire underneath the bronze bull. You can read all this in Roman history, not just where the Bible gives you this little bitty account right here. But then they light the fire under the bull and they roast Antipas. And they have pipes coming out of the bull's mouth. And so as the moans and the groans of the one inside roasting began to come out, it was almost as if the bull came to life. And it was their way of worshiping the God of all gods, Zeus, which we know was no more than Satan where his throne was and where he dwelt. And so Jesus tells his church, listen, I know that you've been faithful to my name. Even at the point that Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among you where Satan dwells. You seeing how all this comes together? So let's keep reading. He goes on, he says, um, but, but, in other words, even though you are faithful to my name, even though you sit there and watched your pastor roast in a bull under a fire 
Even though you sit there and watch that, even in those days, you refuse to deny my name. That's awesome. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put, let me get back here, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Very quickly, here's a review. You can go back to Numbers to read the story of Balaam and Balak. God's children, Israel, is going through the wilderness and they're coming into their promised land and they get to the borders of Moab. They've just defeated the Amorites, they've defeated the Egyptians, and everybody has heard the stories of what their God has done. Balak is the king of Moab, and now the Israelites and their God are standing at his border trying to come through his land. And so he finds this prophet for hire, this renowned sorcerer named Balaam, and he pays Balaam to curse Israel so that they can't come in and take over. But every time Balaam tries to curse Israel, instead God makes him bless them. He tries to curse them, he tries to curse them, he tries to curse them, and every time a blessing comes out. And so Balaam sits back and he goes, I don't know what to do. I mean, I need this money. I want to get paid, but I can't, I can't curse them no matter what I do. So Balaam said, I'll tell you what. If I can't curse them, in other words, if God won't let me touch them and won't let evil come near them, if God says no to that, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll corrupt them. And so he comes to Balak, the king of Moab, and he says, if you will let some of your women come in and seduce these men, these Israelite men, they will start following your gods and they will start worshiping your gods and they will be corrupted and then their God will turn against them. And that's exactly what happened. And so here's what this is saying right here. He's saying that I have a few things against you. There are some who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. In other words, here's what he's saying. There is some among you that are compromising their faith. You're staying true to the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, if somebody sticks a gun to your head, I'm a Christian. But yet, there are sins in your life and there are things in your life that you've made a compromise with. That you've decided that even though God said this don't belong, ah, I'm going to do it anyway. That's a dangerous place to be. You know that, right? This is the compromising church. And so he says, listen, there are also some of you who hold the teaching of the Nicolaeans. And to make a long story short, he's just giving another example of the same thing. He says, listen, there are some of you that are still compromising sins in your life. You refuse to make war on them, but you've made peace with them. So he tells them in verse 16, therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon. Did you catch that? Repent, and if not, I will come to you soon. Wells Baptist Church, I'm going to close this morning with two very simple points. I want you to understand that God tells us that we are to make 
no covenants whatsoever with what he is trying to drive out little by little. Very quickly in the book of Exodus chapter 23. In Exodus chapter 23, and I'm going to go down and I'm going to start for sake of time in verse 29. Look what he says. He's talking about driving out the things in the land that don't belong. God's trying to bring them into the promised land. So in verse 29, he says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. In other words, I'm not going to move everything out in one night. How many of you that got saved and that God is trying to bring into the promised land, has God moved everything that don't belong out of your life right now? No. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make you an empty vessel. But instead, look at what he says in verse 30. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased or until you have grown and until you possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. But look at verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. My first point that I want to get across to you is this. If you're going to be prepared to meet Jesus for the second coming, you better quit compromising with sin. Y'all listen to me. You better quit compromising with sin. You better quit looking at areas in your life that the Holy Spirit is telling you this needs to change. And you know what you do? You ignore it. You quench it. You put it to the side. You keep going. You keep going. You keep going. You keep going. And you make covenants and you compromise with the areas in your life that God is trying to drive out little by little. I'm not going to call you out by name, but there are some of you in here that I've been pastoring, teaching you for a long time, and I've watched you deal with the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, and I'm telling you, this is for you. This is for you. Don't compromise with the sins in your life that God is trying to point out. He's trying to bring you into his promised land, and he's trying to drive out the things that don't belong. So don't make covenants with or, or compromises with what God is driving out in your life. My last point, go forward and not backwards. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24. It says, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their own evil hearts. You got verse 25, there, there you go. And they went backward and not what? Forward. He said, here's the problem. When we walk according to our own hearts and our own counsel and our own desires, there's no way you can go forward. The only direction you can go is backwards. Guys, if you're going to go forward and you're not going to be these kind of people, 
you're going to have to stop listening to the desires of your heart and you're going to have to start making the sacrifices that need to be made in order to move forward and not backwards. There are many of us that we're still going backwards. And so you've got to, you've got to get rid of that. One more scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Let's go all the way through 18. What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God as God has said, and this is the point I want to make, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Go out, leave it, walk away from it. When he points it out to you, start war with it right then and drive it out of the land that he is preparing for you. Therefore, go out from their midst and do what? Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. So here's the thing about it. What is the sin of this church? They're faithful to the name of Christ, but they are easily drawn back into familiar sins. I was talking to Kirby this morning and he's been studying a scripture. He said the scripture's just really been speaking to him and it's a scripture from Hebrews chapter 12, I believe it is, where it says that um, we need to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. So easily entangles us. What is the familiar sin that is in your life that you keep going back to? I'm trying to get across to you this morning so that you understand. Jesus is warning us. I have the sharp two-edged sword. It is the Word of God and it has the power to change you completely. But if you don't allow it to change you and if you don't listen to it, did y'all catch that? If you don't listen to it, I will come to you soon, according to Revelation chapter 2. I will come to you soon, and I will make war against the ones who are not holding it accountable, against the leaders of the church that are not teaching it correctly. I will come to you soon, and I will make war against you. Listen. God is long-suffering. He really is. I'm so thankful that, he is, that he's full of mercy. He's full of grace. But the Spirit of God will not strive with man always. There is coming a time in your life to where if you keep compromising and you keep compromising, you may stay true to the name of Christ and you may be a Christian and you may be saved. But the one who has the sharp two-edged sword is coming. And we don't know when that is, and you've got two choices. You can repent, and you can walk away from it, and you can follow him and go forward and not backwards, or you can get ready to be cut down. 
We don't get to choose when that is. I don't know about you, but I'd like to hang out a little bit longer. See little Austin growing up, spend a few more years with my wife and be able to enjoy my family. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus is very plain here. You keep compromising, I'll cut you down. You keep compromising, I'll cut you down. But I have the words that can heal you completely. Don't compromise with what God is trying to drive out. Don't make covenants. Don't make agreements. When he points something out to you, listen to him. And even though you may struggle with it, go to war with it. Go to war with it. Because you have the power to overcome by faith as long as you follow God and keep moving forward and not backwards. He can lead you out of it. If y'all would stand with us this morning as we have a time of invitation. I didn't even get into the rewards. I pray you'll go home and you'll study up yourself on what these rewards are and what he has promised to those who actually overcome. Those who don't overcome, get cut down. Those who do overcome, there is great things that await you. And I pray that each and every one of you in here are overcomers. I'm